I'm still Stuart Mazell, and I'm still the lead pastor of Westminster, and I'm very thankful for all of you being here, and for those of you who are joining us online or on the podcast, thank you. Uh, we are going to continue in the series that we began a few weeks ago on joy. And one of the things I do want to say before we get into the actual reading of the passage and um, the sermon proper is that several people have told me that they struggle with, uh, with joy, that, it, that it's a hard thing for them, that, that, it, that it's, it's not a natural thing. And, and I agree, it is not a natural. What we're talking about in these passages, it is not a natural thing. It is a supernatural thing. It is something that the Holy Spirit produces within us. But part of the way that the Holy Spirit produces this, it in us is we hear the truth of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit works through the word in our hearts to draw us out and to make us what God has called us to be, joyful people. See, joy comes from God. We heard that um, two weeks ago. And so if, if you're struggling with joy, you're in the right place because we all need to grow and what it means to be a joyful person, a person who knows the joy of the Lord. Today we're going to be looking at a passage that you may not uh, readily know, at least some of you, and it's in a book that for many of you, you may think, well, what in the world, why are we reading from this book? We're going to be reading from the book of Zephaniah, which is a somewhat neglected book in uh, church circles. And I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be um, cool or different or whatever. I'm really doing this because this passage has a lot to say to those of us who are um, deficient in the area of joy. Just a little bit of background, Zephaniah was a prophet to Judah. To God's people during the reign of Josiah the king, that's, if you like history, that's around 640 to 609 BC, somewhere in that area. And he was pronouncing that God is going to do something about your sin. And some of that is judgment. But then there comes this passage, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And here's what God says to the people then, and the Holy Spirit is saying to his people today. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. 
The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Uh, Father, help us to believe this passage is true. Amen. Any of you familiar with the name Marie Kondo? If you're not, Marie Kondo is a Japanese organizing consultant. And she's become pretty popular since I think about 2014, 15, somewhere in that general area. Um, her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, was a New York Times bestseller and uh, sold over 8 million copies and stayed on the list for at least 80-some weeks. All right? And because of the success of this book, she had two Netflix shows. One was tidying up with Marie Kondo, where she literally went into people's houses and showed them how to tidy up their house. And then the newest one, which is actually on Netflix now, Sparking Joy with Marie Kondo, where she's trying to show what sparks joy in life. And that's, that's part of the KonMari, as they call it, method. You if you're doing it in your house, you gather all your belongings of a certain type, say all your clothes, and you put them all in one pile, and then you grab each piece and you hold on to it and you say, does this article of clothing spark joy? If it doesn't spark joy, you throw it out. If it does spark joy, you keep it. And if you're wondering what does it mean to have a spark of joy, she describes it as, it's a little thrill, as if the cells in your body are slowly rising. And I don't know if any of you have uh, actually done this. There is something that's really great about decluttering your house. And there is something great about saying, this does not spark joy in me, I'm getting rid of it. It, it does make, it makes you feel a lot better. It really does. But today, I'm not going to talk about decluttering, okay? We're not talking about sparking joy by what you do in your home to make a cleaner house. No, what today what we're going to be talking about is not just sparking joy, but how to ignite a blaze of joy in our lives. And that comes from the passage that we read today in Zephaniah. Not just a spark but a roaring fire of joy. And the way that we receive this is this way. As believers in Christ, this is the big picture, as believers in Christ, we can have great joy because God rejoices over us. Let me say that again. As believers in Christ, those of us who believe in Jesus and we know that Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the dead, we can have great joy because God, 
the creator of all things, the sustainer of the entire universe, rejoices over us. If you find that hard to believe, you're in good company. But let's take a look at what the passage actually says. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. First of all, he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Four different words, four different phrases in our English Bibles to say basically the same thing. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult. All of them are saying, have joy, be glad, celebrate. And what is it that we're celebrating? Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now in verse 14, there were four different words, four different phrases about rejoicing, about having joy. And in this one, the Lord has four different words for the same thing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's almost like Zephaniah is sitting there and he's saying, how can I get people to understand that God, that we should rejoice and that God rejoices over us? Let me get out a thesaurus and let me look up all the words that have rejoice in them. And then I'm going to put that in this one sentence. That's basically what he's doing here. You know what this description of God reminds me of? There's a story that Jesus told. Maybe you've heard it. There was a son who wasted his father's inheritance money. He asked for his money ahead of time, and then he went off to another country, and he spent it all on just reckless living. And then when he's at his lowest doesn't have any money, doesn't have any friends, doesn't have anywhere else to go, he thinks, I know I really messed up, but if I go back to my dad and I tell him, Dad, I'm sorry, I really can't be your son anymore, but I can be your servant. Will you please hire me as one of your hired hands and let me be with you? Maybe he'll take me back. And in, in Luke 15, Jesus describes... What happens next? And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's the picture Jesus says this is what God is like. 
And it harkens back to this passage in Zephaniah, right? The father wasn't sitting on the front porch in his rocking chair with his arms crossed going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Coming back, begging. Mm-hmm, I told you it was going to be like that. Yep. Yeah, go ahead and beg some more. I might show you a little mercy. Maybe. That wasn't the picture of the father at all, right? No, the picture of this father is that he sees his son at a distance. He gets up and he runs. Now in that culture, to run either meant you were being chased by an enemy or, you know, it wasn't like in our society, you know, where people get up and run. My wife, she loves to go out and run almost every day. You know, it wasn't like that. Running was not a, um, a highly respected pastime. To run had something indignant about it. So for a father to get up off his porch and just run for his son was sort of a sign of indecency. And yet he did it. Why? Because he loved his son. And he rejoices. And even though his son is saying, okay, I don't deserve to be your son, it's like the father's not even hearing what he's saying. He's like, no, 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 no. Let's get a robe. Let's have a party. Come on, let's celebrate everybody. It's like cool and the gang is up in here, right? I mean, they were just celebrating what had happened. This is a picture of God. That he rejoices over his children. He celebrates with them. He celebrates over them, especially when they come to a point of recognizing their own sin and fessing up and saying, you know what, I don't deserve this. And God says, you're right, you don't, but I love you anyway. Let's celebrate. Having trouble with that thought? That God rejoices over his people, struggling with it a bit, thinking that can't be true. That's not the way way I understand God. That's not the way I think about God. Is that the way you're thinking right now? If so, again, you're in good company. Because you see, this truth that we read in these passages is in stark contrast. It's in stark contrast to the way we are often tempted to think about God, right? How many of us think about God as the one who is just waiting for us to mess up and he's going to give it to us? I've told this story before, but it's one that just, it, it, it shows my own mindset growing up about God. My parents gave me for Christmas, an illustrated Bible. And there was a picture of Noah and the flood. And, you know, it had the, the ark, and there was water everywhere, and the animals, and, you know, people in the... It was kind of scary, actually, seeing all the people in the water, and it was a little bit much. I also got a pogo stick that year. And so I had just finished reading about Noah and the flood, and I got on my pogo stick inside the house, which I know I shouldn't have done, but hey, it's Christmas morning. And I'm bouncing around on the pogo stick, and my pogo stick hits the Bible. 
and tears a page. And my first thought was, God's going to strike me down right now. I messed up his book. Obviously, God didn't strike me down that moment, but that just shows the kind of ways that we tend to think about God. I read an article recently called God is Not Out to Get You by Jeremy Treat, and he says this, although most wouldn't say it out loud, deep down, even many believers think of God as the God who is out to get me, that he is waiting for us to mess up so that he can meet his divine quota for punishing sin. And, and many of us have had that thought. That that's what God is like. Even in the church, even after we've heard the good news of Jesus, we still tend to think as God is one who likes to just be wrathful. Right? Wrathful. In fact, Zephaniah begins this whole book with that kind of judgment. Right? Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's, what, here's how this book, with this great God's going to rejoice over you, it begins with these words. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Now that's the God that I know. Right? declares the Lord, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And that's the way we tend to view God many times, that he's just waiting in heaven with a lightning bolt in his hand, ready to strike us down when we mess up. But remember, the book begins with this word of judgment, and it ends with verse 17, right? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Why does he need to quiet us? Because of judgment, right? We're afraid of judgment, and we need to be quieted. He will exult over you with loud singing. N notice, when Zephaniah is describing God, he's not describing this grumpy old man up in heaven, an Ebenezer Scrooge who just hates dealing with people. He's, he's not talking about some angry, frustrated deity who is wanting to guilt and shame and scare us into doing the right things. And on the flip side, this isn't the, the God of Aristotle, the unmoved mover. You know, the God who is just stoic and doesn't really want to get involved in anything. He just winds things up and lets it go. This isn't an indifferent, deist God who is content to watch humanity from a distance. No, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who sent Jesus to save the world. That's our God. In, um, in Exodus, when Moses 
says to God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God's like, you know, I can't do that. I can't show you my glory. No one can see my glory and live. But Moses begs. And so God says, okay, go into this cliff. I'm going to put my hand over and then I'm going to pass by. And then you can see, as I pass by, you can see my backside. And that part of my glory I'll allow you to see. The backside of my glory. But then this is what he says as he's passing by from Exodus 34. Now listen, this is God's own description of who he is. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's really interesting about that passage is God is not some kind of, you know, softy. He's not a pushover. He takes sin seriously, as the end of that passage shows. Sin, there will be consequences if we sin. And God is just. He is right. If you think about it, we all want there to be consequences for sin. Maybe not for us, but at least for others, right? Because if there was no consequence for sin, for wrongdoing, for evil, then there would be no justice in the world. And if there was no justice in the world, then God can't be good. Right? But God is good. And He's more than just merely good. He is perfect in all of His ways. God is just in dealing with sin, but He has also revealed Himself primarily in those first few statements as being merciful, as being gracious, as being slow to anger, as abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And even though the consequences of sin may linger for three to four generations, His steadfast love and forgiveness, and mercy, it spreads to thousands of generations. I've been meditating and thinking about that very point just for a bit, and I have to admit, this has changed the way I think about God. You know, in our day, we we talk about various generations. You know, there's the, the greatest generation, the generation of like World War II, and then there's the baby boomers, And then there's Generation X, go X. And then there's Millennials. And then there's uh, Generation Z. And the newest generation, the one that's coming up now, is the Generation Alpha, is what they're called. Yeah, those are the little babies right now. If um, Now, in each one of those, if we said a generation was only 20 years, taking God's word as it says... If he says a thousand generations, multiply a thousand by 20, what do you get? 20,000 years, right? Compare that to the consequences of sin being three or four generations. Multiply that by 20, you got 60 to 80 years. See the difference? 
huge difference between 60, 80 years versus 10,000s of years. And that's if we, talk it, we take it literally and we say a generation only lasts 20 years. As uh, Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, where he expounds on this much more eloquently than I, he says, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. In other words, maybe it's not the sin itself that's the worst thing. Maybe the worst thing is really how we get the whisper in our ear saying, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really care about you. God could never rejoice over someone like you. And that keeps us cool towards God. Keeps us distant. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. Hiding from God. Because of their sin. Right? If you doubt God's love and God's rejoicing over his people, then hear this, okay? Please, I am begging you, hear what I'm about to say. This is vital. God's joy over us is displayed in his extravagant love for us in Christ. And it is an extravagant love. It's not just a, oh, you know, I love you, but I don't really like you that much. You know, I love you, but I don't really want to be around you right now. I love you, but I need some distance from you. That's not the love of God. Think about what this passage says. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. How has he done that? Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh. He became just like us in every way, yet he did not sin. And then he was willing to take on the curse of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin on himself at the cross. He bore our burdens. He bore our sin. He took it all upon himself. And like one of the hymns we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Do you hear the joy in that song? The judgment has been taken away from you. He's cleared away your enemies. You know, your enemy is not a human being. 
You understand that? Your enemy is the evil one. And all of his hordes of demons. Okay? That's the real enemy. And Jesus is saying, I've defeated your enemy. And he may go about like a roaring lion, but he's still on a chain. And he can't get to you any closer than I will allow. Because I'm the king. That's what Jesus is saying. He's the king of Israel, the king of all, the Lord who is in your midst. Look, Jesus, the Son of God, did not stay in heaven, but he came in our midst. He came among us. He lived among us. And not only did he do that for a period of 30 or so years, he gave us his spirit who resides in us. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The Lord your God is in your midst because he's in you. And when you leave here today, the Holy Spirit goes with you. Do you hear that, Christian? You will never be anywhere where the Lord your God isn't in your midst. Even if you are struggling with relationships, even if you're, you lose your job, even if you have cancer, no matter what it is, the Lord your God is in your midst because He's in you as a believer. He's in you. You shall never again fear evil. We don't have to fear evil because Romans 8 tells us that even, even those bad things that happen in our life, God works them together for our good. We, can't, we don't have to be afraid. We can look to God and say, God, what are you going to do in this? I don't know, but I believe, I believe you're going to bring good out of this situation. You're going to bring good to me because you love me. Verse 16, he says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The picture here is... You get afraid, you get discouraged, maybe you get frustrated, and you go, I just can't take it anymore, right? And, And God is saying, no, 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 don't be afraid, don't let your hands grow weak, because I'm with you. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst He is a mighty one who will save. There is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the saving love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And He will rejoice over you with gladness. He is not the God who is sitting there going, oh, you know, that's Stuart. I love him, but... mm. Don't really like him at this moment. He's a real disappointment. Wish I had chosen somebody else. That's not our God. Now our God says he rejoices over his people with gladness. He quiets us with his love. He exults over us with loud singing. You see, we're not just saved from judgment. We are saved for God. When I I was in the church that I grew up in, there were a lot of hellfire and brimstone kinds of sermons. 
You know, the kind that scare you half to death and you walk an aisle so that you can get saved because you don't want to go to hell because it sounds scary, frightening, awful. And believe me, hell is, according to Scripture. But we're not just saved from that fate. We are saved to something. We are rescued from something to belong to someone. And who is that someone? It's Jesus. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And we find great joy in one another. And one day when we see him face to face, our joy will be so full we will not know how to contain it. That's why we can have joy even today. Because God rejoices over us. So what do we do with this? I was thinking, all right, Stuart, you've been talking about action points at the end of all your sermons for a while now. Now, what kind of action point are you going to have for this? And I struggled for a bit. And then I thought, oh, here's what I'm going to say. And I might get a giggle. I might have somebody say, well, you shouldn't talk about it that way. Uh, who knows what you're gonna, how you're going to respond, but I think it makes sense if you just give me a minute. You know how, like, if you're getting ready to cook a steak, if you just throw that steak up on the grill and you don't do anything to it, it'll be good, but it won't be really good, right? What you do is you marinate that bad boy. Get the juices flowing, right? Get your saliva starting. I know some of you are already feeling it in your mouth. That saliva starting to come up, right? You marinate it. And the more you marinate something, the better it will be. So, believer, marinate often in the joyful love of God for you in Christ. You want to grow in joy? Marinate in this truth. You know, some of us aren't marinating in anything right now. We are flitting from one thing to another. We're just running around and being so busy we can't let anything sink in. And no wonder our lives feel empty and useless. Marinate in the love of God for you in Christ. And you know what marinating takes? It takes time. You're not going to marinate by just going, okay, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. All right, I'm done. Let's go. That's not marinating. Marinating is sitting and letting the truth of God's love, the truth of God's joy in us, the truth of what Christ has done for us to just wash over us. So many of us marinate in social media. We marinate in what's online. We marinate in Netflix and Hulu. We marinate in all kinds of things. Does that really bring you joy, ultimately? God promises that this will marinate in Him. 
Don't get lost in your own issues, your own problems. Don't get self-absorbed thinking about all the things that are wrong with you. No, turn outside of yourself and look to the one who says, I love you with an everlasting steadfast love that will never let you go. And I will hold you fast to the end because you're mine. I've made you my own. You're in my family. Believe it. That's something better to marinate in. Right? Anybody? Anybody hear what I'm saying? That's a much better thing to marinate in. The love of God for Jesus. Look, I know... One last thing. I know it takes some daring to believe this. Because everything in us says that can't be true. Right? The whisper of the evil one is that's not true. God can't rejoice over you. You're too bad. The good news is that while we were sinners, God showed, he demonstrated his great love for us in that Christ died for us, all right? There is no greater way to show his love. So believe what God has said, and let's dare to believe it. Let's dare to believe and to celebrate that in Christ, God rejoices over us. Let me pray that we'll be able to do that. Father, you say in your word that you rejoice over us with shouts and loud singing, with gladness, not because we are great people, not because we're good people, not because we've done everything right, but because you have chosen to love us in Christ. You brought us into your family and you celebrate over us. Will you please give us that picture in our minds that we can leave this place with real joy in our hearts. And for those here today who are hearing this message and they don't know you and they don't know the joy of Jesus, would you even now work in their hearts that they would come to believe and that next time we gather together, we would all celebrate that you've brought another into your family. Lord, by your Spirit, work this all into us so that we would really abound in joy. Amen.